0: Okay, this is a 67-year-old male who had about a year of mucous rectal discharge and increasing gas and about a three- or four-month history of some rectal bleeding. He made an appointment to see his doc, but two days before that, he ended up with gross rectal bleeding, went to the emergency room. The bleeding did stop on its own. He was set up to get a colonoscopy, which showed a circumferential ulcerated mass extending from 8 centimeters above the anal verge, extending up to 14 centimeters above. He then went on to an indirect ultrasound, which showed this to be a T3N0 lesion, 13 millimeters thick, extending into the serosa. He had a CAT scan of the abdomen and pelvis, which showed four lesions in the liver. Two were right underneath in the dome in the right lobe, measuring about one centimeter, and then one in the left lobe and one in the right lower lobe, all a centimeter or so in size or smaller, which were interpreted as indeterminate. And the radiologist recommended an MRI which he had a couple days later. The MRI said approximately six lesions without definite characteristics for hemangiomas, so suspicious. By the time he's gone through all this testing, about a month's gone by, and he's frustrated and ready to get on with treatment and having some rectal symptoms. So we started him on infusional 5-FU and radiation and ordered a PET scan. The lesions of the liver were really too small to biopsy by CAT scan. So about two weeks later, after he's into his treatment, he gets his PET scan And this says he has eight lesions in the liver, all small, both lobes of the liver scattered. And then the rectal mass was hot, but everything else was normal by PET scan. And his CEA is 2.4, very good health otherwise. He was losing some weight during the radiation, loss of appetite and that sort of thing. So he was getting a little bit puny during the treatment. And that's kind of where we are.
1: Yeah, any thoughts? So the first question that always comes to mind in patients with rectal cancer and synchronous hepatic metastases is, number one, does the person need an operation right now? And number two, what is the optimal sequencing of local therapy and systemic therapy? It sounds like this patient didn't need an emergency operation, but was having symptoms and I imagine that's what was the driving force between starting with radiation and 5-FU. I try and give systemic therapy first whenever possible, and oftentimes I find that even obstructive symptoms can be palliated with endoscopic stenting and permit systemic therapy before radiation, especially in a patient who has such extensive hepatic disease that the potential for cure is pretty small in this patient on day one. And I'm thinking that they may never need local therapy, many of these patients. Now, this patient obviously had symptoms that led you to start with local therapy. So at the completion of 5-FU and radiation therapy, in collaboration with my surgical colleagues and discussion as to if and when a surgical approach would ever be necessary on the rectum, as well as are there circumstances under which hepatic therapy, surgical, would be appropriate, I'd then enter into a first-line regimen of chemotherapy
2: with bevacizumab. Steve? Yeah, I concur. I mean, this patient, the only thing we might do a little bit different is if the patient is very symptomatic and this is a little bit of a long tumor. So that's right at the limit of what they can get by with rectal stenting. So probably chemoradiation is a good idea on protocol, preferably, but if not, we've even done it a few times off protocol. We've actually used a combination of 5-FU and oxaliplatin so that you actually are getting better systemic therapy you're still using low doses of your fluoropyrimidine as a radiation sensitizer but more standard doses of the oxaliplatin given on a weekly basis and not only have we seen better responses in terms of control of the pelvic disease but we see a little bit better response to the metastatic disease so that might be one consideration but i would agree if you get good response to the chemo radiation therapy in the primary i would go right to a more definitive systemic therapy regimen, and then base any future surgical decisions, if any, on how the patient responds. There are some of these patients who have excellent control of both their primary and metastatic disease who never end up coming to an operation. Ultimately, they do progress either in the liver or at extra hepatic sites. But as long as their primary is asymptomatic, we've got a number of these patients now who end up never requiring an operation on their primary tumor. Dr Reeves. Yeah, there was an abstract from Sloan about initiating Avastin instead of the standard 90 minute, 60 minute, 30 minute going just straight 30 minutes from the very beginning. Is
1: that what you're doing or Well, I'm currently doing the 90, 60, 30, but the frequency of infusion reactions with the Avastin is so small that it wouldn't surprise me if over time people get more comfortable with a shorter infusion duration
2: starting with the first dose. Is there any look at dosing data why we do 5 milligrams in colorectal cancer, why we do 15 in lung, why we do 10 in breast?
1: There are vagaries of how the clinical trial process unfolded and how studies were timed, and when they were done, that there were different doses selected in colon cancer. Suffice it to say that the study that led to the dose selection for the Hurwitz licensing trial in colorectal cancer was a randomized phase two study with three arms. 5-FU leucovorin, 5-FU leucovorin and bevacizumab at five milligrams per kilogram and 5-FU leucovorin bevacizumab at 10 milligrams per kilogram. About 30 patients per arm and in that study, the five milligram per kilogram arm patients seemed to do a little better in terms of their progression-free survival and as a result of that that dose was selected for the licensing study meanwhile there were some preclinical evidence that more might be better there was no real dose limiting toxicity And as a result, other studies included higher doses of Bevacizumab. And in colon cancer, the point in fact is the ECOG-3200 study that Bruce G. Antonio reported, where as second-line therapy after failure of 5-FU and TCAN patients got either Bevacizumab alone, Folfox alone, or Folfox and Bevacizumab. The Bevacizumab dose in that study was 10 milligrams per kilogram, so twice the dose in the licensing trial. That study showed a survival benefit of a couple of months in the patients getting Folfox and Bev versus those getting Folfox. As a result, the Bevacizumab package insert has been changed, and a dose of 10 milligrams per Kilogram appears with Fulfox based on those data. And this has caused a great deal of consternation and wrestling and hand wringing because now we're faced with one study in frontline therapy with IFL, a regimen we don't commonly use, with five milligrams per kilogram, another study showing a survival benefit. After failure of IFL using 10 milligrams per kilogram with oxaliplatin, does that mean you need 10 with oxaliplatin or 10 in second-line therapy if you haven't had it in first-line therapy or because you saw this great survival benefit with 5, should we just use 5 with whatever regimen we use? I think most of us are comfortable in our hearts with the notion that five is the right dose, five milligrams per kilogram, regardless of the chemotherapy regimen. That said, I say that with the caveat that the only data we have in colon cancer with Folfox is with 10. It's a conundrum.
2: Neil, I just wanted to go back to one last point on this other case just to make sure I don't sound too cavalier. And again, Neil is correct. I mean, the patient's got some bad factors, the fact that there were eight liver mets in that patient. But if you have a patient who has a dramatic response, then I would be aggressive surgically. And the real problem that I face as a hepatobiliary surgeon in that patient is you've got a patient with small lesions. And if those lesions disappear on therapy, what do I do with those? And that is happening with increasing frequency and you know occasionally all of them will go away maybe you'll have start with eight you end up with three they were by low bar you go in you ultrasound okay you still see the three you don't see the others what do you do as a surgical oncologist i'm trained to take out all of those areas, but I can't do that because I can't image them. I don't really know where to treat with RF ablation even necessarily. So we are going after those patients and resecting the disease we can find. If I find anything with intraoperative ultrasound I will resect it and or ablate it while I'm there. But in that scenario we are, again you've got a 67 year old patient here who, if healthy and wants to go to the wall, we would go to the wall. I mean we would do the appropriate surgical therapy resecting and or ablating the remaining liver metastases Going after the primary and letting them know that even though radiographically and clinically I can't see your disease, you've got a high risk to have micrometastatic disease still in the liver. And I routinely will lay Seprofilm or some other kind of agent in at the time of operation, knowing that there's a high probability I'm going to be back in at that liver. So there was some recent
1: data presented suggesting that in radiographically normal liver, where there was a metastasis, 80% of the time you can find microscopic tumor cells there. So I'm going to flip this back to you, Steve, and say, under those circumstances, do you encourage your medical oncologist to send the patient back to you before they go away
2: completely so that you know where to resect? Well, the problem is some patients, the smaller lesions, you know, you describe lesions that are only a centimeter or so in size. Some of those go away with only three months of therapy. We always like to operate on the liver before somebody's had six or nine months of chemotherapy, again, because of the effects of both arena Tcan and oxaliplatin on the liver. It's a tougher liver to handle in terms of, you know, surgical issues for me. Having said that, again, with the lesions going away, the way I'm approaching it and the way we believe is correct, if, say, the patient had three METs in the right lobe, and two go away. I will still do a right hepatectomy, even though there's only one lesion that I could wedge out. I go ahead and take out all the liver at risk. That's an easy situation. The problem is that patient like yours who has bilobar disease where I really can't resect all of them, so I was probably going to do some combination of resection and ablation, and I get in, and with ultrasound, I can't see the left lobe disease. Say I still see a couple on the right. Okay, I do a right hepatectomy. Now, I know there were three or four lesions there on the left that I can't see. I am not going to blindly just blow holes in somebody's liver with a radiofrequency needle in that case. Like I said, I tell them, I think there's a pretty good chance I may be back here, And I can tell you in that scenario, going along with the data that was presented by René Adam from the Paul Bruce, essentially, we have similar data now. We know that by laying seprafilm in there, the majority of our patients who've had those lesions radiographically disappear. After stopping chemotherapy, the majority within a year have developed recurrent disease at that site. And we will then go back in the regenerated liver and either resect or ablate any remaining disease.
1: Dr. Glenn? To go back to the issue about infusional pumps, how do you determine who should be using
2: you know, the competency level in terms of placing them, using them? I mean, it's not something that I certainly use routinely or feel comfortable with. It's problematic because, unfortunately, all of the big, certainly the surgical oncology programs in the 80s and 90s, that was a big part of the training. All the fellows got a good experience putting them in. Now, with fewer and fewer being placed, I think that experience is reduced. The other problem is occasionally you'll find somebody out in the community who will try to put a pump in who may have never done one, and you certainly have an increased risk of complications and misperfusion to the stomach or duodenum, improper placement of a catheter. And so there are papers written, certainly some that we've written out of our group. There is some films that have been done on proper technique But that's one of those things that it's not optimal. I mean, you'd really like to have it done by somebody who knows what they're doing. So in that scenario, you're really better off sending a patient to somewhere where they do a high volume of hepatobiliary surgery and they have some experience in placing the pumps because the complications from the pumps, again, can be catastrophic. We've certainly managed patients that had pumps placed at other institutions who come in with necrosis of the wall of their duodenum or stomach. And not surprisingly, those folks don't tend to do very well.
1: I agree. There's no credentialing for the administration of FUDR and there's a steep learning curve and it's all about experience and training and even at large centers like Fox Chase. Our fellows are not getting a large experience in administering hepatic arterial therapy because we don't do it that much. I think that having these patients on clinical trials where there are very strict guidelines, a lot of people watching the case is the way to do it. And then if these ongoing clinical trials are positive, then there will be this mandate to train people to do it and more people will have experience. But right now it's just us dinosaurs who know how to do it right. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our speakers and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Meet the Professors.